I convinced them to turn down the lights and you were hooked up to a pulse ox machine and your oxygen levels were like in the seventies, not great. That night, your dad and I were both with you and we were watching the pulse ox machine and your numbers started going up and we're like, what the heck? Hello, my name's Mary, and welcome to Not a Perfect Heart, Discussions for the Heart. I'm a doctorally prepared nurse practitioner and co-founder of Not a Perfect Heart, a community for those affected by congenital heart disease, survivors, parents, siblings, and more. I'm excited for today's show, entitled The First Nine Days. We have a very special guest today, the co-founder of Not a Perfect Heart and my mom, Barb. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad you're here, mom. Me too. So I know lately we have been talking about the early years of my life. And if you're okay Mm. with it, I'd really like to talk about what you remember. Let's start with before I was born. How was your pregnancy? I had a normal pregnancy with you. I'd had a miscarriage before I had you a few months before that. But my pregnancy with you was completely normal. I had morning sickness, you know, just like a lot of people do for the first three months. I exercised, I ate well, I went for massages, I did, you know, all the self-care things that you do to take care of yourself when you're pregnant. So totally normal. Yeah, that sounds pretty nice, actually. (laughs) Did you find out in utero that I had any sort of congenital heart defect, any sort of abnormality? No, not at all. I mean, I had lots of ultrasounds just because I don't know. I don't know why, but I was overdue with you by a week. And even at at that ultrasound, they didn't say anything about your heart. They did say that I was leaking amniotic fluid. So they wanted to admit me, you know, that day. So I was admitted that day, but nothing, no heart defect, no, you know, they didn't hear anything abnormal. So even all that was fine. Interesting. And at that time, so I was born in 1991. Were they able to identify congenital heart defects? Do you know? I mean, I think if I was seen by a high risk neonatologist probably. I mean, they could do level two, I think they're called level two ultrasounds. You know, I had those with your sister, Angela and David, but not with you. I mean, they didn't, they didn't even screen in the nursery for heart defects. So. Oh, really? Wow. Interesting. And at the time when they heard a murmur, when a murmur was identified, they just dismissed it as more of an innocent murmur well it was your dad that heard the murmur and he would ask all the you know we both worked at the hospital that you were born in we knew a lot of people there and of course he was hanging around the nursery (laughs) and he would listen to your heart because that what a cool thing right and then he would he would ask the nurses you know this is what i'm hearing are you hearing the same thing and they're like oh calm down just stop being a doctor, just be a dad. And, you know, even when the pediatricians came in, he would ask them, are you sure you don't hear it? Are you sure you don't? Well, finally, on the day that I was being discharged, one of the partners in the practice that we had joined 
for pediatric care came in and he said, yes, I do hear the murmur. But at that time they said, you know, it, it wasn't uncommon to hear a murmur in, in the nursery. So they said, go home. Why don't you bring the baby in, you know, tomorrow? So that was a Friday. And they said, let's, let's listen to her heart, you know, outside of the nursery. We went home, you know, we had visitors in the hospital, lots, lots of our friends who were medical people came in, they wanted to meet you. Our family came, you know, nobody really saw anything that seemed odd, nothing. But when we went home that night, our good friends, Ben and Sue came over to meet you. And Sue just, she thought your breathing was very fast. And she didn't say this to me until many years later, but you know, cause we were like, it, it's fine. We'll be fine. You know, babies have, some babies have murmurs, you know? So we went, uh, we took you to the pediatrician the following morning and she said, you know, I, I do hear it. And so she said, you know, in a couple of weeks, call a pediatric cardiologist and have her seen. And, you know, sometimes there's a little hole you know, between the ventricles. Is that right? I don't know. You know, a little, what do they call them? Ventricle septal defects. Yeah. VS. Um, yeah. So no big deal. Well, we went home. It was a Saturday and your dad called Children's Hospital and connected with Dr. Cole, who was your first cardiologist. And so Dr. Cole asked us some questions about whether you were feeding and did your breathing seem labored? Were you sweating? I mean, we didn't really didn't notice any of that. I think your dad would have noticed that. Yeah. But we didn't. But looking back, I mean, I still have the vision in my head of you. You had such beautiful coloring as a baby. You were very pink. You had these really pretty pink eyelids that looked like, you know, somebody put makeup on you and pretty pink lips, but you had a little ring of blue, very faint, very, very faint. And I remember seeing it, but not thinking anything of it. I was a first time mom. Nobody else said anything either. And lots of doctors had looked at you by this point. Yeah. I can imagine that it was, you didn't notice because there was just so much going on at the time. Well, and when you were born, you know, they give those APGAR scores, you got a 10 and a 10. I mean, like we thought you were perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's wild how much changes in just a couple Right. Of yeah. Well, it probably didn't really change. It was that they were not screening for this kind of defect. Right. 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 So then... You guys talked to a pediatric cardiologist, or I was seen by a pediatric cardiologist. Well, so we talked to him. That was a Saturday. Monday morning, we were there first thing. Okay. And they did an echo on you, which took a really long time. <laughs> EKG. And, and I remember, you know, sitting in the exam room and with the door closed, and there was a poster on the door for Children's Heart Network. It was a support group for families with congenital heart defects. And I'm like, oh my God, we, we, we won't need that, right? But turns out your echo revealed, you know, the, the hypoplastic right ventricle and, and a lot of the other defects that y you have. 
Dr. Cole made arrangements for you to be transferred over to Children's Hospital, which was right across the street, into the NICU. Now, normally, babies who've been home don't get readmitted to the NICU. I don't know who he had to talk to, but he, he had to make some arrangements for you to be admitted into the NICU. You know, this was all like, I didn't understand what they were saying. I could only think that, you know, you were hungry. I mean, I remember going in Dr. Cole's office and nursing you because I wanted you to not be hungry because it never occurred to me. They'd probably give you a feeding tube. Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So I had no idea what any of this meant, but we were able to carry you across the street over to the NICU and and take you there ourselves. (laughs) How weird. It was weird. Yeah. How weird. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then it got a little more chaotic once we got there. Yeah. (laughs) And fortunately it was a day in the hospital where they do cardiac conference. And so that's a day when all the cardiologists, all the cardiac surgeons, anybody, but that whole team gets together and they review the cases that are currently admitted and, you know, talk about the plan, so the treatment plans for these cases. So we got there in time for cardiac conference and I'm pretty sure you were like, first, yeah, you got moved to the top of the list. There were lots of cardiologists coming in and, and every time one of them came to talk to us, they all pulled out a piece of paper and they would start drawing your heart, you know, to, to show us what they thought was going on and, and what they were thinking about. And, and, you know, those ideas changed as days went on, but they scheduled you for a catheterization so that they could go in and take a look. And I can't remember it was maybe the next day or two days later. Wow. I can't imagine. And then from there, I eventually had my first open heart surgery. You had your first surgery. So we knew what all the defects were. And so hypoplastic right heart syndrome, coordination of the aorta, transposition of the great vessels and arterial septal defect, which just sounds like a mouthful of words and but it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a rare combination of congenital heart defects. So with that surgery, so your cardiac surgeons used a technique where during the surgery at some point when they were doing the open heart repair, they put you on the bypass machine and you were packed in ice to slow down your heart, right? Which believe me, was terrifying for me to think about. The way that they warmed up your body was that they used blood from donors who were, who were there with us. So we had recruited five people and we couldn't use family members because, and, and I couldn't give you blood, even though we're the same blood type, because they were afraid that you would develop antibodies. And in case you needed a heart transplant, then we might be putting you at risk for rejecting the transplanted heart. We had five friends who are all colleagues. They sat in the waiting room with all of us. Like we were, (laughs) we were like a band of gypsies because, you know, it was not on Papa and your aunts and uncles and grandma, grandpa, and 
friends and you know Nana doesn't go anywhere without yeah. food so <laughs> there you go. everybody had a sandwich <laughs> and then our five friends then at the point where they took you off the bypass machine those five people went to the blood bank and donated blood and then they brought it was brought into the operating room and that's what they used to warm you back up wow they also did something they made a last minute decision so They needed to put in a shunt, which I think was made of Gore-Tex at the time. And the surgeons decided to change the size of that shunt at the last minute. And I think it had to be shipped specially from Europe because that's where they made it. Those were two things that team of surgeons did that I don't know. I mean, there weren't a lot of other teams in the United States who were doing this operation. I mean, we research. We were on the phone with every single person who could help us all across the country. We knew that we were in good hands when we were at Children's in Chicago. After that surgery, the surgeons came out and they were not smiling. You weren't recovering as they were hoping you would. It wasn't like we weren't like jumping up and down and cheering. Time would only tell. After the recovery room, you were taken back to the NICU. And I was there for a long time. You guys were there for many oh, yeah. months, yeah. right? Well, no, a month. A month. Oh, okay. We didn't leave. We stayed pretty much around the clock. At the time, the NICU was like a ward. So there were smaller rooms that had like three or four isolates. Right. Yeah. And, and no space for you to really sleep. It's mostly. No, yeah. there were, there were one or two rooms. There was one room that had, that was like an ensuite. So it was like a lounge, but it had a, a bathroom with a shower. Okay. So sometimes we could get that room and they usually gave that room to the parents who had the sickest kid in yeah. the NICU. So we got that room a lot. There there was another room too, but if we didn't get either of those rooms, we would find a couch in a waiting room. There were some showers for parents. You know, we would, we had a whole routine where one of us would go out and look for every day we had to get, find a blanket, a pillow, uh, you know, scout out where we were going to sleep. And your dad and I took shifts sitting with you. We did three hour shifts, three hours on and three hours off so that the other person could uh, catch some sleep, get some food. And then during change of shift, that was the only time that we had to leave you. And that was at 7 and 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Okay. 7 a.m. was, it was hard. It was hard when one of us couldn't be in there, but 7 p.m. was the harder time because Uh, 7 p.m. the cafeteria closed. We were so fortunate that one of the first nights that you were in the NICU, a friend of mine, a nurse that I worked with, called at the hospital. Now, remember, we don't have cell phones at this time. They had to call the nurse's station, and she said, we want to come and see you. And, And we met like a group of people that your dad and I worked with. And, and I said, no, I just, I couldn't, I really, I I couldn't, I couldn't talk to anybody. I I just couldn't, well, they didn't listen to me and they all showed up (laughs) and they, and they all brought food and they walked me into a waiting room, a lounge area. And they said, you know, we don't care what you eat. 
but we're going to stay with you until you eat. From that night on, there was always somebody with us at 7 p.m. Oh, that's cute. I don't know how they worked it out. So somebody always sent us food or came and had dinner with us. It was like they built this giant safety net underneath us. Wow, that's very cool. It was. Were you guys able to still work or you guys took off this whole time? (laughs) Yeah, we couldn't work. And your dad was in his residency, so he had to pause that. And, And actually, the day that you were born, your dad was signing papers to join a practice in Milwaukee. We were going to go back home to Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Yeah, because that's where our families are from. So now we're in Chicago. We're not with our families. And, you know, you're in kind of critical condition. Yeah. So we could not go back. We couldn't work. Wow. Interesting. How far were you from your apartment? At least 30 minutes. And the only time we went, we didn't go back there often, especially not at night. But one night when they told us that you were not, you were not doing well. And it was, I think you had gone into cart. I think this is the right night. You had gone into cardiac tamponade, which means, and, and help me with this, but I think that means the fluid Fluid is building up around the sac of your heart, right? And that's a pretty critical situation. So there was was no time to take you into the operating room. And so they opened you up and and put in chest tubes to drain the fluid as quickly, you know, ushered us out, ushered right at the bedside. And when they brought us back in, it, it, it looked like a war zone. I mean, it just, as you can imagine, right? Yeah. Everything thrown everywhere to thrown everywhere. Yeah. And you were not doing well. And so we asked for a priest to come in and say a prayer for you. And, and there, there wasn't a priest um, available. So a, a chaplain came and everybody told me, you know, to tell you goodbye, uh, to, you know, tell you it was okay that you could go and not worry about us. We would be okay. But you know, I said something like that, but believe me, it would, I did not believe it. It yeah. was not every, every single part of me knew that you were not leaving. I asked the chaplain to leave because we weren't going to need her. You recovered, but you were still pretty sick. They told us that you would need a transplant and we were devastated yeah I can imagine just devastated I think that night we went home one of the doctors that your dad worked with and someone from his office came to children's hospital and and drove us home so that we could get more clothes and kind of regroup and rethink that was one of the few times that I remember going home but The transplant thing was, that was terrifying to me because at the time, this is such a coincidence. So we're in Chicago. I grew up in Wisconsin. There was another baby admitted and the baby's mom had gone to the same grade school that I went to. 
Oh, wow. And she was a classmate of one of my sisters, but we knew the family. Yeah. And her daughter was in, she couldn't have been in the NICU. She was in the PICU. She had cardiomyopathy and she needed a transplant at exactly the same time you did. You were both on the list at the same time. And I remember asking your cardiologist, what happens if two hearts come in? Like, what a crazy question that is. Right? Yeah. Like, what, what are even the chances of two hearts coming in at the same time? Because I'm like, how can this one team be split into two places? Like, what if that happens? And he's like, it'll be okay. We'll figure it out. It turns out that their baby got a heart transplant. Oh, wow. And they, they were so excited. So they got the room with the shower. <laughs> Aww. Uh, that was such great news. It turned out that they decided it was only a few days that you were recovering well enough that you could be taken off the transplant list. So their baby, they went home with their baby eventually. And, well, she was two. She was a toddler. And I stayed in contact with that mom. And I don't know how long it was after the transplant, but she did not survive. Wow. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah. So it was dealing with all that kind of stuff. Other people going through similar, it was just, it was, it was a, a lot. lot. Yeah. That's pretty interesting that I was on the, li- I didn't know I was actually on the list. I knew that. It oh, was you didn't know? No, I didn't know I was actually listed. I knew it was discussed, but I didn't know I was actually listed. So that's interesting. And I too would be kind of taken aback by it. Even now, if it was brought up to me, I would have a hard time with it. So I get it. Yeah. And, and every night that the doctors went home, I, you know, I prayed for them that they didn't get in a car crash because I'm like, you got to get back here in case case a heart comes in, right? That's how you kind of think. But as you start to do better, one of the signs that we had, and and this may sound crazy and, you know, maybe it is, but, you know, they brought you back into the NICU and you were in a corner spot in the NICU. And I felt so strongly that night that if they could only turn down the lights, that, that you could rest a little. You know, they never turn off the lights. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't because I got to see everything. Yeah. So I convinced them to turn down the lights and you were hooked up to a pulse ox machine and your oxygen levels were like in the seventies and not great. That night, your dad and I were both with you and we were watching the pulse ox machine and your numbers started going up and we're like, what the heck? So we would jiggle the the thing that was attached to you. And then we would <laughs> jiggle the cord that was attached to the machine. And we started calling nurses over. And we're like, are you seeing these numbers? Like, is it? And they, and they were doing the same thing. Everybody jiggled. And at one point it hit a hundred. Whoa. That's amazing. You, you didn't stay there, yeah. but you hit a hundred. And so the next morning, you know, when when the doctors came around for rounds, it was interesting. We told the cardiologist and he was like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> we told, we told the surgeons and they were like, hmm, maybe, 
you know, <laughs> they were more open to the, like, this was a sign uh, sort yeah. of thing. And at some point that night, somebody walked past the room. There was an open door and he was like a, a housekeeping person. He looked in at where you were and he just stood there and for a while. And it seemed like he was saying a prayer or something, but they then told us that you were in the lucky bed. <laughs> oh, wow. So that, you know, babies who were in that spot in the NICU always did better. So I'm like, oh, great. So if there's a lucky spot, I'm pretty sure there's an unlucky spot. So yeah, please don't yeah, tell yeah. me what that is. <laughs> yeah, don't tell us what that is. <laughs> yeah, because you, I mean, sometimes you got moved around, you know. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. Well, I don't think since then I've gotten up to a hundred. Usually, <laughs> usually my oxygen's like 95 to 97. So I'll take it, but yeah, that's pretty cool. It was cool. It was a, it was a sign. I think Mary, you were telling us that you were going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Through the power of machine. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah. I don't know. I don't usually believe in stuff like that. I'm like, it's like, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Do you want to talk about your dream with Aunt Mary? Well, it wasn't so much a dream, but it was, you know, every time you went into surgery, I struggled with this idea of where your consciousness goes. Like what happens while you're asleep and do you feel alone are you afraid are you crying are you whatever but this vision came into my head that you were not alone you were with my aunt mary who passed away while i was pregnant with you and aunt mary just loved all the babies and the family and she just you know she would sing to you well she wasn't not you but to the babies other babies your cousins and she would kind of do this dancey, dancey thing with the babies. And so the, the vision, as I'm trying to like process all of this, I'm sure it was the first time you were in surgery. That's what came into my head. It was like, oh, of course, she's not going to be alone. Aunt Mary will be there. And I felt her presence. I know a lot of this sounds kind of hocus pocus, but I mean, that was what was in my head that gave me a great deal of comfort to know that your consciousness was not, you were not afraid, you were not alone. I think that makes sense because it's really, it's probably very scary to think about your baby, your child being alone in an operating room. You don't know if they're yeah. hear anything or, right. you know, I mean, personally, I don't remember any noise. I... Yeah, I don't remember any noises except a couple times I remember people talking, but it is, I mean, it is frightening to go into a OR room. Yeah. And not yeah. recognize the faces. <laughs> Every time you went in to surgery, we had, we asked the anesthesiologist if they could give you something so that you would go in asleep. Yeah. So, because I couldn't bear the thought of handing you over to the anesthesiologist no matter who it was, and to have you cry. It was easier for me if you were asleep. asleep. Yeah. And they accommodated that, which kind of that seems crazy now, but 
<laughs> no, I wish I was asleep every time I go in the OR sometimes. Yeah, well, I ask. I don't know. Maybe they'll let you. <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe asleep first. <laughs> Can I be asleep first? Yeah. No, I don't yeah. think so. I don't remember any of these surgeries, and now I may know why, but was there any preparation prior as far as did you guys teach me about any of my surgeries, like my Fontan? No. Um, Okay. I, I mean, I honestly don't remember anything prior to kindergarten. Um, yeah. I mean, your first two surgeries, you were a baby. The surgery that was hard was when you were two. The Fontan, right? Yeah. That was hard because you were a little person. You had a tricycle. You could walk and run and talk and do all the things that toddlers are are doing. And the thought, you know, I think at that time we asked, instead of putting you in a crib, we asked for a, a full-size bed so that oh. I could lay next to you, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, what, I mean, you had a lot of tubes and wires and things. And so that was always challenging, but they let us do that. And that surgery, because you were in the hospital a while with that, and you had IVs in both of your ankles. So they had trouble getting the IV in during surgery. So they did a cut down on one of your ankles. I think you still have the scar. I definitely still have the scar. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So after that, I think that was the IV access. You couldn't get out of bed or anything. I mean, we would uh, take you for walks in like a wagon. (laughs) Oh, cute. In the hospital. Yeah. When you came home from that surgery, you literally had to learn to walk again. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I, and again, I didn't know what that scar was from. Oh, you didn't? No, 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 I thought it was, (laughs) I thought the vein from the ankle was taken and used somewhere else. No, Uh, it was the cut down. (laughs) So that, and you know, I mean, it, it, you had teeny weeny veins, but usually the anesthesiologist could get access. And, and so that reminds me like, you know, at one point you were on Coumadin and so you have to get blood tests when you're on Coumadin to make sure that the levels aren't too high in your blood. You'd have to get blood draws. And we would tell people like you get one chance. And if you don't think you can do this, then go get the best person you have to do this. And they, they always did, (laughs) you know, they always, I mean, they didn't always get it in, but sometimes they would have to call in other people. Yeah. I mean, we were nice about it, We were nice, but we're like, you know, you know, you don't get like three or four tries here, you know, especially with a little kid. Yeah. It was terrifying for you. You hated it. Yeah. Do you remember That that? No, I didn't even know I was in Coumadin. This is like oh. all just so fascinating. But wow. that might explain we why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should, we should talk about this more often. That might explain why I hate tape too, with all the IVs. Oh. I have a real aversion to tape. Yeah, you know, you when you were a baby, you came home on oxygen. And of course, can you imagine trying to keep a cannula in a baby? On no. Baby's nose. So they put tape on your face, which I hated. Oh. And let me tell you, this was a big deal for us to get that tape off and, and to not leave marks. And we would try everything that we could think of and anybody else could think of. Ow. Yeah. 
I'm sure you don't like tape because of all that. Yeah, <laughs> I hate tape. I hate there the was, touch of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a there were you had a lot of tape. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense then. Wow. So question wondering about like anxiety on your side of it. Oh like, yeah. I was totally consumed with just keeping you alive. <laughs> yeah. Um and when we brought you home from the NICU, you were on a um, feeding tube. And so before we brought you home, they told me that I would have to show that I could put the feeding tube back in. And your dad kept telling me, they won't make you do it. They won't make you do it. But I had a doll that I practiced on. (laughs) And then... (laughs) The surgeons came in and I was sure they were going to like say, no, it's okay. But no, they made me do it. And I had to put a feeding tube in you. Yeah, it wasn't, I mean, you just, it it didn't seem right to me. It wasn't right. And so actually your dad encouraged me to try breastfeeding you. And I had pumped uh, like all the other moms in the NICU and we saved the breast milk and we froze it. And, you know, that was a way that we, you got to know other moms in the NICU is that you would meet in, in the little room where the refrigerator <laughs> freezer was. And, oh my gosh. And then you, that, that was also the way that you knew when a baby died oh. because the oh. breast milk would be gone. So I tried breastfeeding you and that was like almost miraculous. You really, you thrived after that. You were attached to me for a long time. When we brought you home, the doctor said that we couldn't let you cry or you would desaturate or you would not have enough oxygen Yeah, and you would turn blue. And we're like, okay, like for how long can she not cry? (laughs) And they're like, not even a minute. So we had to be very creative. (laughs) So nursing was very comforting to you and you had a pacifier that was helpful and we sang to you a lot and you know, that calmed you down. But there were times when your father and I actually had to talk to each other. So we would have to sometimes sing things to each other. <laughs> like, <laughs> did you take out the trash? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So especially in the car, that's what we did a lot. We sang a lot after you were able to be around other babies. And I would hear another baby cry. I'd be like, oh my God. Like, oh, you're the baby's crying. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't occur to me that you could let a baby cry. Wow. Like a normal, healthy baby. So there was a lot of anxiety about that. But I think in between your second and third surgery, I don't know. Yeah. In between your second and third surgery, it was very hard for me to have to do it again. Right. I wasn't doing very well. I don't know if it was anxiety or more depression, but one of my friends said to me, we need to find someone for you to talk to. And she would come with me to therapy appointments and she would sit in the waiting room with you so that I could be in session. And so my goals were very specific in therapy is that I want it to be emotionally strong enough to deal with the next surgery. And it turns out, uh, I never really got there. Uh, and, yeah. and I was, I was upset with that therapist and I'm like, you know, so now I just found out we have to do this and I'm nowhere near ready. There was a little bit of anger and, you know, I, I was, I mean, I was scared. 
Yeah, I'm sure. I can only imagine. Just now being an adult and hearing about all these stories, I mean, it gives me anxiety and I don't have kids, but I can just imagine. Yeah, I mean, we learned to do some things, like we figured out some coping strategies. So like the night before you would have to be admitted into the hospital, we knew distraction was the name of that game. So we would go out to dinner with friends or have family over or do something, something because we couldn't just, you know, sit there and think about what was going to happen the next day. So we needed to be distracted. And we kind of used that technique all throughout your life. You know, distraction was the name of the game. Yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, yeah, you do the best you can. And I do that now. I mean, Eat, eat my favorite meal before I go and yeah. watch movie watch or whatever. Movie. Yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. That 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 was very helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough reality that being a new mom, you don't expect. But and then when you were going to have another child, because <laughs> we have <laughs> we have two. I have two siblings. You have two kids. How was that? Like, what made you? Well, okay with having two additional kids after having a heart. heart My, my, you know, at first I thought this was it. I I wasn't going to have any more children. I mean, you know, and then I started thinking like, what are the chances of lightning striking twice? And, you know, that was an interesting question for me because I would ask that, you know, kind of thing to a lot of people and People had stories about things that happened in multiples to them, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I guess lightning can strike twice. Um, <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. Of course, we talked to the doctors, like, like, what are the chances of having another child with a heart defect? And, you know, let alone any other kind of defect, right? Right. But somehow we got brave and decided that you know, part of it is that we didn't want you to be an only child. We had uh, always thought we wanted, you know, three or four children. We got brave. And then (laughs) while I was pregnant with your sister, Angela, so we, we did do the high risk level two ultrasound. And we actually did one at children's hospital and with your cardiologist. And he said that there was a chance of something with Angela's heart. Oh, and, and of course, I didn't hear everything he said, because at that point, I just shut down. Right, right. right. So I was like five months pregnant. And I spent the entire rest of that pregnancy crying. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. And so it turned out, you know, Angela was born, she did not have a heart defect, but she had low blood sugar. So that got her admitted to the NICU. For I wonder low if she knows sugar. that. I don't know. And I think part of it was that, you know, we were at the same hospital that you were born in. They had missed your heart defect. And not that we did anything about that or that was really nobody's fault, but yeah. they were not going to miss another thing. Yeah. With one of my babies. Right. So anyhow, Angela spent a little bit of time in the NICU too. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, but she doesn't have a heart condition. She's fine. And Dave was fine as well. Totally fine. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's a wild roller coaster. Definitely. 
Yeah. And, you know, by the time your sister and brother came along, you were doing so well. It wasn't like you were sick all the time. I mean, really, I mean, we used to say like you had more open heart surgeries than you had, you know, colds. I mean, you didn't have the normal, you didn't have ear infections. You didn't get fevers. You didn't get, you didn't get the normal things. You didn't get, you know, like you just didn't get those things, you know, and neither did Angela and Dave. Uh, Yeah. And, and I don't think we were like germophobes. I don't think so either. We're just lucky. I always thought that when those five people who donated blood for you that first time that they passed along some pretty hearty antibodies to you. And so even though, you know, you had to have all those units of blood and it, even while you were on ECMO and we didn't talk about that, but I just feel like you had gotten so much immunity from all the blood you were given. Yeah. I don't know if that's right. (laughs) No, I mean, I think so too. Do you want to talk about ECMO and how that experience was? ECMO, that's what happened after your first surgery. You you went on ECMO. The cardiac tamponade was a different time. Same hospitalization, but maybe a different week. <laughs> uh, so a- after your first surgery, you you did go on ECMO. I had no idea what that was, but it was you know it was like a heart lung bypass machine, and basically you had these giant cannulas or tubes look like there are giant needles attached to them that were coming out of what was your carotid and your jugular on one side of your neck. And that was so that your heart could rest. And what ECMO required was that people had to donate platelets. This became a full-time job for your dad. He was helping recruit people to donate blood And again, we didn't have cell phones at the time. So all of this, you know, we were friends with the director of nursing at the hospital we both worked with. And she helped us organize through her office. People could go in and uh, sign up and say that they were available to donate blood because you got like 60 units of blood. Wow. So it was like 60 different people. Wow. And so, and sometimes, you know, I mean, we're just spread through the hospital that you needed blood and people helped and it was like amazing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> really amazing. We wanted to do it that way. I don't know that we used any of the units from the blood bank at the hospital. I think the blood that you got was all donated because even at that time, I think still people who donated blood had to be CMV negative and imagine that. So CMV is like the cold virus, right? Yeah. And so what are the chances of finding that many people that were CMV negative? And I, I don't remember exactly why that was. I think it was so that you didn't get RSV. I don't know. Probably something like that. Yeah, some horrible respiratory thing. The other thing about ECMO is that it's not like a long-term solution. Right. So at that time, you could only be on ECMO for a week. I don't know if it's different now, but they would come in every day and do an ultrasound of your brain to make sure that you were not having strokes. They would test your vision and hearing. And then at the seven-day point, 
a decision had to be made. And we were in a room with one of your surgeons and he said, I, I think it's, I think it's time to take her off. He hesitated a little and, you know, and surgeons are usually like very, like, no, yeah, they, they just, they're confident. Right. Yeah. And he seemed a little, not so confident. And he said, yes, I'm sure. I'll tell you why he hesitated. For me, the thought of you coming off ECMO was similar to like taking my baby and being on a boat and throwing my baby into the lake is to see if she could swim. I mean, it was like that. It was take you off ECMO and we, we don't know what's going to happen. You came off ECMO and you did great. You did really great. But the doctor, the surgeon that hesitated, the reason why he hesitated was when I found this out later from one of the nurses, I think, is that he had had a child prior who had been on ECMO and died. Oh. And they took the baby off of ECMO. I'm sure that was, that's always something that, you know, he thinks just came back into his consciousness, right? After you came off ECMO, there was another baby in the NICU who was born. I don't remember what they call it, but his intestines were outside of his body. Yeah. And he had to be placed on ECMO. And those parents were so, like, when it was time for him to come off ECMO, they were they were so positive and they, they just felt like if, if you survive that their baby could survive. It was very hard, you know, to be around during that time and their baby did not survive. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of babies who didn't make it, Mary, while you were in the NICU. I can imagine. There were a lot. And I don't know that any of them, I don't know which ones had heart defects, if any of them. I mean, there were definitely preemies and, you know, babies with other things, but it was a lot. Yeah. Well, there's got to be a reason why I made it. That's what I think. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. God has a different plan. (laughs) I guess so. I guess so. so. Well, thank you for talking to me. I think this has been very interesting. I learned a lot about myself. Yeah, I'm (laughs) sorry you didn't know those things. (laughs) No, don't be sorry. I think it's, I mean, maybe you told me and I just was like, eh. (laughs) But has been interesting definitely well great i'm glad i'm glad to be here talking to you and this has been great for me too i hope you enjoyed this discussion between my mom and i i had a great time recording it thank you for joining us today my name's mary and this is not a perfect heart podcast discussions for the heart thank you for coming along on this journey this is our community